Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is this? Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. And I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Today on the program, I will be in conversation with Teddy Wayne, author of the novel, The Great Man Theory. The people I'm kind of envious of most in this regard are people for whom other people, just not to speak <laughs> the name of your podcast, people for whom other people are their greatest joy. People who who just love being around their loved ones and, and, and who love very freely without being cheap about it. That was Teddy Wayne, and his new novel, The Great Man Theory, is available from Bloomsbury. It's just out this week. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. I recommend it. It's a remarkable book. I tore through it in a matter of a couple days. The Great Man Theory is heartfelt, it is funny, it is deeply intelligent, and it is written by an author who is expert at chronicling modern masculinity in its complexities and fragilities and in its mutabilities. This is a book that examines how men and people are changing or not changing in response to contemporary pressures, cultural, uh, political, and to any number of uh, shifting circumstances that we find ourselves faced with. The Great Man Theory is a novel about a middle-aged guy named Paul, a father of one, divorced. He is bottoming out professionally as an academic, trying to navigate difficult terrain in that respect. This is a very contemporary novel and a wonderfully insightful one that illuminates a lot of what we have just 
lived through and how we live now. It also offers the added benefit of being very funny in an offbeat sort of way. Like I said, I loved it. I found it to be a page turner, just a wonderfully rendered novel. And I really enjoyed talking with Teddy Wayne for the second time. He first appeared on this show all the way back in January of 2013 in episode 143. So it's been a while since he and I last spoke and a lot has happened in the intervening stretch of years. You're gonna hear our conversation in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper, publisher of the novel Aurora by David Kapp, soon to be a major motion picture from Netflix and Academy Award-winning director Catherine Bigelow. Stephen King calls Aurora, quote, impossible to put down. This is a contemporary literary thriller that features a protagonist named Aubrey Wheeler, resident of Aurora, Illinois, She is just trying to get by after her semi-criminal ex-husband splits town, leaving behind his unruly teenage son. And then there's a mass blackout event. The lights go out, literally, not just in Aurora, but across the globe because of a solar storm. Suddenly, all problems are local, and Aubrey has to assume the mantle of fierce protector of her suburban neighborhood. Meanwhile, Across the country, her estranged brother, Tom, a fantastically wealthy, neurotically overprepared Silicon Valley CEO, is riding out the crisis in a gilded desert bunker. But the complicated history between siblings is not over with, and what feels like the end of the world is really just the beginning. There are many reckonings that must happen, and not everybody will survive. That's Aurora the new novel by David Cap, available from Harper Books. All right, so my guest today is Teddy Wayne. His new novel is called The Great Man Theory, out there now in a beautiful hardcover edition from Bloomsbury. You can also get the ebook or the audiobook. A wonderfully rich and insightful book about what's going on (laughs) with uh, people in modern times. Uh, I can't tell you how much I like this book. I really enjoyed it, and I really loved talking with Teddy. We had a good one, and I'm very pleased to get to share that conversation with you now. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Teddy Wayne, and his new novel, One More Time, is called The Great Man Theory. I'm in my sister-in-law's apartment in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, because I have two, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home who are probably napping now, but if they wake up, which they will over the course of this interview, they would likely disrupt this and, and make it impossible. Yeah. And it's a small Brooklyn apartment, so there's nowhere to hide. And it's hot and sweltering in Brooklyn today. I just installed one of the ACs, so that room is okay. But yeah, it's hot. There's no AC in this apartment that I'm in, and I had to turn the fan off for audio purposes. So it is, it's an uncomfortable situation for me. <laughs> good, good. I like to hear that. And uh, I want to begin 
by congratulating you on this novel, which is uh, like it's a combination of things. It's a beautifully plotted, propulsive story. It is a very cutting and even disturbing at times social satire and a kind of send up of the culture. And it's also, and I'm probably not even going to get to everything that it is, but it feels very much like a a very deft and incisive and knowing examination of contemporary masculinity, which I know your work has been noted for before, but I really enjoyed it and was moved by it and feel like my preoccupations, like both as a human and as a writer are synchronous with it. Like I felt a kinship almost with this book, like but between your book and mine, even though they're doing different things, I was like, oh yeah. wow, like Teddy and I were having some sort of mind meld back in the day. So congratulations. Thank you, and, and not to sound like I'm just buttering up my interviewer, but I, I genuinely loved your book, which I read sometime over the winter. I, I had a galley of it and, and wrote you, because I, I, same thing, I, I felt this identification with it. I think we're both, I know we're both fathers of, of young kids, and I think a lot of the anxieties that attend to paternity are showing up in different ways in both books. They're, they're obviously about very different topics, but manifested itself in a way that I felt the same kind of like kinship, I guess you could, you could, you could put it, that um, it, in a way that I've read a few books uh, about like sort of 40-something men were fathers in the last few years, and I, I now get it in a way that I didn't get it before I had kids. Your book did that for me too. There, it really articulated some things I had maybe felt, but not articulated for myself. And those are just wonderfully written too. But it just the same sort of thing I think about a, a contemporary masculinity, the very strange, not to say it's bad, but the very strange position liberal men, liberal white men, especially find themselves in in the 2020s America, which is a almost the only time in history it's been different you know every other decade was kind of the same thing i think to be a a white guy in 1950 was sort of to be a white guy in 2000 depending on your economic position and the last 10 15 years things have radically shifted and while the great man theories may be a little more pointedly about those shifts i thought your book too was about what it is to be a man and a father now and i loved it so thank you for writing it well i appreciate that and i think it might be useful for listeners to hear you talk about what the great man theory is. I mean, obviously it's the title of your book, but it's drawn from an actual thing. So can we give people context there? Yeah, I have, I have like a, you're the first one to ask this in a, in a live interview or podcast interview. And I had a whole comic riff planned about (laughs) how it's, it's a book about, I think, I think I shouldn't do it. Can I just say what the riff is, but not actually do it? Can I go halfway there? Yeah, sure. I would claim it's a it, the book's about a, a dating and relationships blogger who's listening to the Lizzo song "Truth Hurts" and she hears this, the line "Why men great till they got to be great," and she theorizes that there's one great man left in New York City, in all of New York City, and she's going to find him. And the book follows her on the course of sixty or seventy dates <laughs> as she attempts to find this great man. <laughs> and um, I, I think it might be too flippant an answer. The real theory is 1840 theory by the Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle, which um, proposes that history is driven by certain individuals, great men, almost exclusively men in his time, 
who are the ones that shape the world uh, as opposed to the masses below these men and uh, obviously kings presidents someone like putin is unfortunately a, a so-called great man he's not actually a good man but he's a great man trump the Elon Musks and Zuckerbergs of the world, these certain individuals by dint of their intellect, courage, charisma, or, or more nefarious qualities are the ones who shape our history. And it felt like a very relevant to our time theory uh, that this is both how the world works politically, but also culturally. If you look at social media, it's certain individuals who have branded themselves and become the great men and women of, of Twitter or Instagram, and they're the ones that shape our daily narratives, along with a concordant loss of collective action that's been declining in America since the 60s, if that was probably the high watermark, 1960s, maybe early 70s, unions and, and mass movements, while there have been obviously certain movements that have had great success, Black Lives Matter most recently, I think is the probably the biggest one. It's not like it used to be, and, and it's more and more a culture that revolves around individuals and individuals standing out from the herd and they're being the ones who are who are dictating where we go. Even when it's a, a good man who's the great man, so like let's say Barack Obama, which if you, you might have problems with him, but as recent presidents go, clearly the most morally good of, of all of them since Jimmy Carter at least. And even then, for the I, I voted for him. You know, I'm, I'm not. It's not great to put all our eggs in the basket of he'll fix it for us, which I think liberals basically did from 2008 to 2016. Assumed he would take care of it, and in the meantime, the right developed all these weapons and and grassroots support uh, because we were sort of asleep at the wheel because we let a great man do it for us, and it should be all of us pulling our weight. And I'm as guilty of this as anyone, I should point out. Paul, who, who senses and knows deep down inside he's not a great man. Paul being the protagonist of your novel. But the protagonist, yeah. Not the Paul we both know, usually, <laughs> who we <laughs> referred to before this. Right. Um, Paul knows he's not a great man. And there's an anger that not just at the unnamed president, who's clearly a stand-in for Trump, not just at the, at the unnamed president or the unnamed right-wing news organization he becomes obsessed with, but an anger at himself for not being the one to be the, the superhero of our time. And uh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a sense that it shouldn't be that you're angry at yourself. You should join a group. You should join your local political organization. You should, you should do things in your community. There's other ways to contribute besides being the standout. But Paul has this uh, deep down desire to be recognized for what he perceives as his greatness, though he knows he's not really great. And, um, that shouldn't even be the equation. The equation should be we all work together and make life better for all of us. He's a very interesting character because I think on, on the merits, generally speaking, he's pretty spot on. <laughs> like I agree with a lot of his assessments. I think mm -hmm. probably you do too. And yeah. yet there's something sad about him. The word pathetic might even come to mind. I mean, this is a guy in his 40s who, whose professional and personal lives are sort of plummeting. He lives with his mother, you know, by modern standards or maybe by historical standards too. People would say, well, this guy does not have his shit together. And yet a person like him who 
is intelligent and paying attention and trying hard to respond with some wisdom and, and intelligence to the, the ground shifting beneath his feet, technologically, politically, and otherwise, you know, that's, a, that's not an easy road to hoe. Most people just sort of go along and he's resisting. And I feel some sympathy to him or some sympathy toward him for that. You talk a little bit about that complexity, like the complexity of who he is and how you sorted it out. Like you said, I think I am in sympathy with most of his positions, albeit he probably thinks of himself as more of a victim uh, of circumstances than I do. I also just haven't had as much bad luck or misfortune or things going badly for me as he has. So it's very possible. I All my protagonists, they've gotten kind of not increasingly bad, but um, they're less and less people you'd want to be, uh, I think. Except for the, the third book, Loner, you really wouldn't want to be that guy. But these last two, you also wouldn't want to be. And I think part of what makes, if the books are redeemed, uh, or if, if, they're, if they work, it's because I'm not too judgmental of them, despite their badness. I can I see it, but I'm not just simply castigating them, which makes for, I think, a less empathetic reading experience for the reader, who just sees them purely as an object of pity. And I think there's enough identification with them for me to create a, a smidgen of sympathy still, no matter how bad they get. With someone like Paul, I always think of you know, had my career gone a few different turns or had my life taken a few different turns, I, I could see myself being not far off from him. I could see myself having gone back to live with my mom, possibly, you know, had things really spiraled out of control. I could see myself being divorced at 46 with a kid and, and the kid not really wanting to speak to me anymore. That seems eminently within reach. I think the key is to create a character who still feels plausibly within reach but who uh, maybe a far enough distance that you can still see him with some clarity. What helped, I think, is that this is my first book I've written in third-person point of view. All the rest have been in first person. And first person automatically generates some empathy for the reader because you identify because you're seeing the world through that character's eyes. This is a very close third person, not to get too fiction crafty. So... Third person, immediately, there's a little bit of distance. We're, not, we're seeing him outside of himself. We can see things about him or see things about the world that he's not quite seeing. But we're also deep in his thoughts and his feelings at other points as well. So there's an ever-shifting ambiguity of, of empathy for the reader of this uh, partial allegiance to him in which we sort of see how he's seeing things and sort of don't. And I think that's that was necessary for this kind of book, which is neither an apologia for this kind of Gen X liberal white male who feels a little bit left behind, nor an outright indictment of him that simply shows him to be a fool, to be scorned. Uh, I want to reside in that middle ground. And um, I think it's the only way to do it with a, with a character like this, because it, it wouldn't be interesting to do, to go to either extreme, to, to show him solely as a, if he were say like a Harvey Weinstein type, uh, that's obviously a villain, an out-and-out -out villain. There's no really redemptive process for someone like that. It's it's too far gone. If he's a saintly guy, uh, that's not quite a very interesting uh, protagonist in fiction either. He's sort of in the middle there, and therefore he he, did, he needed and required a perspective that planted the reader in the middle too. 
I was reading some reviews of your past books and someone said that you have a unique ability to create these characters who, even though they might be in some respects, maybe repellent is too strong of a word, that you still have some vested interest as a reader in rooting for them. You still mm-hmm. kind of want to see things turn out well for them, even though they might be their own worst enemy in certain instances or might not be deserving, I guess, of, from some perspectives of this sympathy. And that's no easy feat. And well, I yeah. felt that. I felt that. I felt a lot of, I mean, if I'm being honest, I felt a lot of recognition with him, maybe to a degree that's uncomfortable. And that's cool too, because it kind of shows you yourself. I mean, I fit that category, white male Gen X guy who might sometimes feel like he's being left behind. I don't think that's a unique experience. I think in this culture, it's easy to feel that way. And there's Absolutely. only a, there's only a few of us, I would imagine, who don't feel that way. <laughs> yeah, those who, well, I've always thought it's when you're, to quote uh, the song, I forget, with Fat Lip, uh, I forget which song it is, but when you're winning, they're grinning is the line. And I, he's speaking about other people, uh, that they're ha- people are happy, nice to you when you're doing well. But the same goes for yourself. But when you're winning in life, it's very easy to be benevolent and magnanimous and to um, feel okay about everything around you. And when you're losing, as Paul is, it's easy to feel aggrieved and and vexed by the changes around you. And I think, you know, he's an adjunct professor who's just been demoted even further. Had this taken place 20 or 30 years ago, he'd probably be a, a tenured professor despite his, his thin publishing record and at least would have more job security. And he'd be doing better in the world and might feel therefore less aggrieved. Um, throw in all the other changes happening around him and you have a recipe for a guy who's starting to feel like, starting to feel embittered and that the world is pitted against him. This is not, I would say, like a white male aggrieved, a novel of aggrievement um, in that he's not focusing on race and gender uh, specifically as as what's ailing him uh, at all. There's maybe a couple of references to that. There's one little plot line that has something to do with that. It's not that kind of novel. It's more about being, I'd say, even just middle-aged and, and aging out of relevance and his his general sense that he is destined for irrelevance and there's no recuperating it. And whereas 20, 30 years ago, he would have still been in the prime of his relevance as a 46-year-old white guy. Yeah, you know, makes me think about what the value is in being relevant (laughs) and having a big life. We place so much importance on this in this culture. And I feel like ecologically, maybe in particular, what the earth is trying to tell us is that we need to live smaller lives. Like we want too much. We consume too much. This is probably making a lot of us really unhappy because how many people can really live a quote unquote big life and, you know, walk around Manhattan like they're the king of the town. I mean, it's just not realistic. And I'm not even sure if it's something that's, that you would actually want if you could see what it was truly like, (laughs) maybe it would be, you know, but I just think, you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes I'm like, you know what? I want to want less. Yes. Um, Years ago, you had my friend Will Chancellor on your podcast, and he talked about anti-growth, anti-growth philosophy or movement. Capitalism is, he knows it better than I do, I'm going to butcher it, but capitalism is built on rapacious growth. No matter what, you've got to make more profits than last year, or else it looks like you're static or falling behind. And 
in this world of, that we've built around ourselves of endless growth, it, it's a recipe for unhappiness, for never being satisfied, for always wanting more than you have. And it doesn't take a, a Buddhist to tell you the key to happiness is to be happy with what you have rather than getting everything you want. Getting everything you want, I guess, if you continue to do it, is is good. But A, you'll never get everything you want. And B, uh, you'll never have a sort of inner peace through that. And this idea of relevance, I think, is is uh, psychologically similar and need to be always front and center. I wonder this with people who have very active social media profiles. I wonder, first of all, how do they keep it up, like the the energy required to do it? But psychologically, how do they maintain it? How It must not feel good to know that if you're not tweeting that about the Super Bowl that night, you're losing clout because someone else is tweeting and they're getting attention and you're not and you're being deprived of it. I would hate to live like that, to feel like at every moment you've got to be on. Uh, I find it exhausting to be on as it is in, in person, but then to do it over a phone, maybe 24 hours a day, would feel really poisonous to the soul. And um, that's separate from this whole economic argument of anti-growth. It's just a kind of, kind of subset. But I think it's what Paul is thinking about, which is he's so irrelevant, he needs that again, uh, or never even had in the first place, but but wants it and craves it. And I understand why it is addictive when you're getting attention for your work or for your personality. Most people like it, you know, up to a point. I think the the, the serious introverts don't, but generally people want to be recognized for their for their talent. But I agree that this desire for a bigger life. I, maybe when I was younger, I was more into the idea of it. This a, a sidetrack here. We just lost the lease to our apartment, and we have to move in two weeks or so. And we're figuring out where to live, and it's not a good situation in New York right now. Right. But I, the obvious uh, alternative proposed itself of should we move to the suburbs or somewhere rural even. And we actually did live out of New York during the pandemic. I, uh, the whole thing, we lived on a farm basically for like a year and three months with my wife's two sisters and her mom and a dog and a cat and our two kids. It was a pretty full house. And it was almost seeing no one except for cows and, and goats and a few of the farmers. And it was nice to be removed from society. It happened. It so happened that society was not really functioning then anyway, so it, it sort of didn't matter. But anyway, I, I recently questioned, should we just move to like a small town somewhere and not to say give up, but to step outside of this is all the social problems of cities notwithstanding, is it better for our psyches to just be away from this all and and live a simpler life? And I think the answer is probably yes. I think we're not going to do it, but I'm pretty certain people who do that are, are happier. Yeah, I have the same exact line of thinking, like frequently, you know, driving around Los Angeles. All you got to do is drive around for 10 minutes and you see something awful and you just go, what am I doing here? But then you also see the beautiful mountains and the blue sky and the ocean or whatever it is, you know, so it's, it's this weird mix of like the highs and the lows. And I don't think people living like quieter lives in smaller places are experiencing that sort of yo-yo. Yeah. I mean, we don't, in New York, we don't have oceans and mountains, so we're not even getting that much. <laughs> There's like... I mean, the the best thing they have going for it is is running into people on the street that you that you know, and that happens a lot. And 
the day I was really contemplating this, I ran into someone, a writer who I'd never met, but I blurbed his book and I recognized him at the playground. Um, he was there with his kid too. And we talked for a while and that was fun and made me feel like, oh, there's a reason to be in New York. He of course is himself leaving probably in a few months too. Everyone's uh-huh. jumping ship right now. But as semi introverted as I am and as also with young kids, as little as I go out now, the need to be around people still exerts a pull. And I think if I lived in a small town, I would feel a little bit too isolated. Although I recognize it would be better for me long-term, I think. Yeah. It's a hard decision. It's a hard, especially once your kids get established, your kids are maybe a bit younger than mine, but mine are, my daughter's 11 now. And so it's like, I know it's like if we moved her now, that would be disruptive to her social life and stuff. So we'll see. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But, you know, as we continue on this line of thinking related to contemporary masculinity, I think in particular, but just contemporary life, one thing I want to note personally is that when I've been talking to people lately, friends of mine, with rare exception, I feel that people are struggling. Uh, People my age, I don't know hardly anybody who's not having a hard time. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if this is unique to me or if you have a similar feeling and if this is maybe s- some of the energy that you're drawing on in this book. <laughs> yeah, well, I've always read that the 40s are the the unhappiest decade and that um, may fit slight improvement in the 50s and then people start getting happier in their 60s. I think 60s are the happiest decade. So for the reasons that are pretty easy to understand, it's stressful to raise kids to have your career still be ascending. So the combination of having to raise young children while focusing on an increasingly demanding career, but also what happens to, I think, everyone I know, which is in your late 30s, early 40s, a sense of, is this all there is? Like, what do I care about this anymore? You know, I mean, I, I certainly care about writing now still, but 
not the same way I did 10 years ago. And I, I, it doesn't, I guess I've maybe achieved some of the things I set out to achieve, not to sound arrogant about it, but I, having done that, it doesn't excite me the same way it, it used to. Um, so the things that were once incentivizing me have started falling away. And then you're left with just the thing itself, the activity itself. But everyone I know is starting to feel some sense of professional, not necessarily burnout, like they're overworked, although there's quite a bit of that too, but a uh, an existential crisis of what do I do? And I think there's a reason this happens in midlife so much is that you've been doing it for probably about 15 to 20 years at a, at a serious level and you, they're diminishing returns at this point. And then throw in aging parents, the lack of friendships or the loss of friendships, which has certainly been accelerated by the pandemic, and an increasingly perilous world historical situation of, of political crises, climate change. I mean, I, I do feel like, not to sound too fatalistic, there's never been a worse time to be alive since World War II and the Depression, in, in terms of the world's health, the world itself, uh, at least in America. I think in impoverished countries, it's probably better now than it was 40 years ago. World poverty levels are, are improved, world health, life expectancy is improved. But for a middle-class American, uh, except for maybe people of color who had it worse in previous decades, this is just a bad time to be alive, not to put too fine a point, fine a point on it. And I do think these things start coalescing and making you feel like, what's the point of this all? On top of the, the standard midlife crisis, when you when you see, you know, authoritarian leaders rise up not abroad, but like, you know, um, as president or as governors or as senate senators, it really does start feeling depressing, and it can compound the nihilism that you might be feeling anyway. Of, well, let it all go to hell. I don't really care anymore. There's times I do feel that way. Of, I, I want to resist and fight back, and there are times I'm like, oh, just just fucking let them have it. If this is what they want. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Not that I'm doing so much again, mind you, but the, the idea of resisting this seemingly impossible, implacable tidal wave of evil feels too overwhelming. And I just feel like packing it in. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think we all take our turn feeling that way. You know, you can't, it's hard to sustain peak resistance mood you know especially when there's so much shit flooding the zone as they like to say you know it's a lot to cope with this book speaks to that uh very well and before we leave like midlife crisis and like midlife ennui one of the things that you didn't talk about with respect to this particular juncture of a human lifespan is the way in which at around the age of 40 you know you start to age into like I don't know what you call it. I guess like full adulthood or something. Uh-huh. And then there's 20 years between you, give or take, and this like next generation of adults. And inevitably, and this has been the case, I think, ever since human beings have been here, <laughs> there are differences, like significant differences between the generations. And you start to notice them. And it there's a learning curve and there are these gaps and tensions that exist between generations. Uh, This I think is maybe drawn most sharply in the Elena section of the novel. You know, Elena's Mm -hmm. a student of Paul's at this college where he teaches and she's his best student. 
But I'd like to hear you talk about that, you know, the ways in which we're trying to navigate all this stuff collectively and then I think in particular personally with respect to Paul. But you're also trying to do so while working across these inherent generational divides in both directions. It's not just the, the, you know, Paul looking back at his Gen Y students or whatever they are. He's also looking at his mother with whom he now lives, yeah. who is a baby boomer, I believe. Uh, and who, Actually, silent generation, I think, even. Okay, yeah. like But depres- yeah. depression era, right? Am I, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like, I, you know, I think we all feel that. And there's lots of that chatter, you know, between people and online and whatever about the different generations. And I think you and I are Gen X, so we don't, mm-hmm. we're often not even, we're just deleted. <laughs> but I'm even worse. I'm not even, I'm Generation Catalano. I'm, I'm the, the, the micro set of Gen X that really gets like erased. Like it's not, I was born in 79. If you don't, do you know what Catalano refers to? No, uh-uh. See, I didn't even. I didn't even know exactly. about this. You didn't even know that exists. <laughs> it's Jordan Catalano, the character played by Jared Leto in My So-Called Life, the short-lived, I think, 1994. I want to say one-season TV show that had a big effect on people who were in high school at the time, which I was. So it's like the three to four year age range of being in high school when My So-Called Life was on. This is all from one Slate article years ago. But it's the micro. It's between Gen X and Millennials, and it's. I, I feel much more kinship with Gen X, but close enough to Millennials to, to understand the youth and know and, and and know what they're talking about. But yes, Paul, I deliberately placed him. The year of this is not stated ever, and again, the president is never named. So it's a, a kind of alternate universe or a parallel universe of, a Trump era without it being Trump explicitly, and there's no year set. But he's 46, and that feels important as a, a guy who is definitively Gen X, just too old to, to really connect with his 18-year-old students and, and far too young to connect with his 86-year-old mother, and a guy who's sort of left behind by history, too. There's a lot said about Gen X being the overlooked, ignored generation and I, I, I kind of agree. I think they had their heyday for a few years in the early 90s. I want to say like Nirvana through Reality Bites was like this big <laughs> explosion of a focus on Gen X. Yeah. But the difference is they were, they were focused on when they were already young adults, meaning 20-year-olds. Now I think generations get attention as 12-year-olds. Millennials are being talked about 10 years ago when they were like, you know, 12 as, as this big cultural force. Gen X didn't evolve into Gen X until they were like 22 or so, at which point you are a young adult and and mostly formed. So they get shorter time to shine. And then by the time you're 30, no one really cares about you anyway, culturally. So it was it was a brief window. And Paul is is emblematic of that. He and I'd say I I, look, I, I have a lot of admiration for the generation after me for their political commitment. My generation on the whole did very little politically. Uh, I was in college during the Clinton years, didn't just tuned out. I never, never paid any attention to what was happening in the world at large, barely did any kind of protests outside of like the college protests. And most people around me were were doing the same. It It was pretty easy to be apathetic or just ignorant. Then it's impossible to do that now or, or nearly impossible and to its ad, huge credit, people who are 25 and, and below 
have stepped up hugely um, the last, especially six years, and and done much more than my generation ever did. On the other hand, I do think, like Paul does, that technology has, I don't want to say ruined them, but made their lives worse and, and made not them worse as people, they're the same people they would have been otherwise, but made their way of interacting, of interacting with the world and engaging with the world worse, to, to just be blunt about it. That communicating through phones and through laptops is a far inferior way uh, than either a landline phone and actually talking, which is, which is out, out the window now, or obviously being in person. And some of it's not anyone's fault. There's been a pandemic for the last two years. But a life spent looking at a screen, I think, is a, is a much worse life. And I don't think people who have grown up with that their whole lives are even fully aware of how bad it is, that yeah. they've never seen another way of, of living. And my kids are too young to really be into it. They're two and four. But I'm kind of terrified for them and, and what life and what adolescence will look like for them because I think much of it will be through looking at a little phone screen. It's really hard to, like I, uh, my wife and I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to be the dick dad who doesn't let his daughter get a smartphone. And she got one at age 11 because we were going to go on a trip abroad. And I was like, you know what, if I get separated, like I have to have a line of connectivity. And then it's like, you start to look into these quote unquote dumb phones and it's just like, well, does it have the same plan? And, and after a while you're just like, oh, fuck it. You know, we'll, we'll get like an old model and we'll try to police it. And then of course, like we don't police it really all that well. She's a good kid, but she's still on it a lot. They, and like, you, you want to see something terrified. You have eight kids age two and four. Wait until your kids get around an iPad and start. We, we'll never have one. I'll never get one. Yeah, but they intuitively just know. They'll see yeah. one and they just go boom and they, they start playing with it without any instruction. And it's I like we, we try to keep the phone out of their hands. Even my two year old I saw her last night was somehow swiping through a phone the correct way. And I, I they're you know, the classic thing of them like looking at a, a print book and trying to like enlarge the screen or do something with it. And even that's happened a couple of times. Uh, I won't get an iPad. That I, I'm pretty certain about that. Whatever we move in next to our next place, I think we're going to put the TV. We do have a TV. I think we'll put it in a slightly out of the way place to make that less of a centerpiece. But there, yeah, there's no stopping at some point. And I, the only reason I'm can can feel critical without being I, this this gets to me is the same way. I, I, I'm on the phone all the time too, and I'm just as much an addict as anyone else. And when I get my screen weekly screen report, screen time report. I'm always disgusted at what I've, at how much time I've, I've been on the phone. Um, if I don't know how, I, I'd be a pretty different person, I think, if I grew up with a with an iPhone, and with the internet, because I think I would not have read books. I think I would have just been doing what I'm doing now, which is a lot more video watching and perfunctory reading of journalism instead of reading a print book and not having interruptions for hours. Yeah. I feel the same way. I mean, it's like I've tried to cut myself off and reorient myself towards these technologies, but I think of like, I don't know, there's something inevitable about it. It's the world we live in. And I think of like, I remember having like, you know, I had some family members who were like homeschooled and couldn't, didn't have access to the culture the same way that maybe mm -hmm. uh, we did, but eventually it gets through. 
and it, I, you know, and maybe it's not even if this is the world we live in. There's some argument to be made that it might be uh, hindering. Do you know what I'm saying? If your if your kids don't have access to the the things that other kids have access to, or whatever it is, so yeah, you don't want them to feel like a freak. But you know, I remember a few kids growing up who TV was like forbidden from their households. I, I'm just thinking of one right now who was sort of like culturally adrift. You know, he, he didn't know the things the rest of us knew. Um, he couldn't chime in. And he, he was kind of a nerdy kid to begin with, so it probably just exacerbated those differences. He, I think he turned out better for it. Uh, I mean, he may have turned out well anyway, but I do think on the whole, if you can suffer through the ostracism, it's, it's better for the kid. And yeah. I will do as much as I can, but I, I'm sure I'll have to relent at some point. Yeah. Based on how quickly I acquiesce to crying now from toddlers, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll succumb to a version of that in the future. Yeah, I mean, and then there's just practical There's just practical stuff. Like, what if we get separated and yeah. we're someplace where she doesn't know where she is? Like, I want to be able to text with her. <laughs> you That's know? why I, got, I, I held that from, for a smartphone until 2013 myself. Wow. And, and it was because I was traveling too much. And when you're in a foreign city or even just another city in, in America, it's hard to get around without a smartphone. And it makes it a lot easier to have one in your pocket. And so I just I broke down and I had all these rules at first that started falling away about about usage. And now I'm just as bad as anyone else, which is what more or less happens to Paul. He's he's a Luddite. He's writing a book called The Luddite Manifesto. He does not own a smartphone. Um, he has to get one to start doing a rideshare, basically become an Uber or a Lyft driver. And that's the the original sin that leads to his technological downfall where he starts <laughs> getting on the internet much more. It really is, yeah. It's like he goes through the cycle of life. You know, I, I love that like curmudgeonliness about him and how he resists. That's such admirable it's such an admirable thing to do in this day and age, to like successfully resist these technologies and to cut against the grain. Uh, you know, there's a phrase in the book that recurs and that really hits home with me because I think I've used it a million times, which is good at life. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting proposition in the book. And I think in the world writ large, the way we think of somebody who's good at life is somebody who's prosperous, successful in their profession, mm -hmm. has a relationship that seems to be healthy, might have some degree of fame or notoriety. And that's a person we look at and we say, hey, they're good at life. And I think so often there are people to whom this phrase might be applied who actually, when you parse it, aren't good at life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I just think that that is what you're doing. I think we need to examine more closely what it actually means to be good at life. I think our value systems are out of whack. And I think that's how Paul feels. Yeah. And, you know, the question becomes how to how to walk that line between resistance and between just the practicalities of being a human in this world can you be good at manners pertaining to say business and financial realities while also having uh like a a moral code and having your head screwed on straight with respect to the cosmic wonder of life and the reality of mortality and you know what i'm saying it's like it, yeah. it's hard and i struggle with this personally all the time like what does it mean to actually be a success as a human being and why do i feel so re 
repelled by the ways in which contemporary culture seems to define it. Right. I mean, Paul, I think you defined it well, that he, he views it as people who figured out the system and, and excel within it. Um, so he's thinking about his daughter's classmate's dad, so a, a kind of rival to him, a successful nonfiction journalist, political journalist, who's a bit of a sellout, and he's not really in the novel too much, but just briefly mentioned as this guy's good at life, or his more more immediately his ex-wife's second husband Steve, who was a <laughs> successful space and satellite insurance uh, executive. These are guys who are good at life in in the classic sense of they've done well professionally. They seem to be comfortable with themselves. I think if you were teaching your child what what does good at life mean, you you would not say it's, it's it means to do well at your profession and make money. It means to be good to other people. And I think what the people I'm kind of envious of most in this regard are people for whom other people, not to speak (laughs) the name of your podcast, people for whom other people are their greatest joy. People who, who just love being around their loved ones and, and and who love very freely without being cheap about it. Uh, Meaning without being like a, a cheap date about their love, but who, who, for whom love is is a reserve and a resource that's not in short supply, both giving it and receiving it. That to me is is what I would try to impress upon my kids. But as you grow up in the world, no one's gonna no one teaches you that. And, and I mean, there's a little bit of that, but you're mostly instructed by the by society. It's doing well. It's it's achieving. It's it's making money, and the idea of 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 having other people be your your sort of your resource instead of money, I think is is seldom touched upon. And Paul, who's a a curmudgeonly crank, is the other big recurring phrase, um, is not only not good at life in the in the classic sense, but not very good in this other sense too of surrounding himself with with love. Hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things you 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 said you know the culture is kind of telling us to do well. And make money, but I think with regard to technology, it's also telling us to get famous, yeah. even micro famous. You know, like in some respect, having like a higher degree of social media reciprocity is a, that's a way of winning. And I, you know, what I've seen in my life is that when somebody has that, people really do respect it, and they there's a sense of like, yeah. This person's got 200k followers, or you know, something like that. It's like it does carry cachet. It's got. I mean, even in like a smaller sense, you know. I know like 200k followers isn't even that many, depending on who you know what echelons you're operating in. But that seems to be pervasive. And I notice my daughter sort of. My daughter's even like tease me. She's like, "Hey, Dad, you only got 7,000 followers for your podcast or whatever." And I'm just like, "Sorry, <laughs> like, doing, you know, I don't know what to tell you, honey. You know, but um, it's very much, you know, it's very much in the air, and I don't think that's necessarily a great thing. No, clearly, clearly not. I mean, I guess this has been a, a theme I've, I've followed in all my books to some extent, most most explicitly in Johnny Valen- Love Song of Johnny Valentine, which is about a famous child pop star. So it, it dealt very up front and center with fame and the the treadmill of chasing fame and 
the wages of it and and how it can distort and warp you. But each subsequent book has had some um, has it taken at a different angle. Typically, it's been these these men, young men in, in loner and apartment, and a middle aged man in this, who are striving for that kind of fame and are not there, and and they are fighting against their anonymity, and they think that some degree of acclamation and recognition will fulfill them in a way that their own lives don't. Yeah, you're you're not going to tell your 11 year old either the key to life, the, the, a good life, <laughs> being good at life means getting a million followers on Twitter. We know that, and yet, how can she resist that? And I, this is the other scary thing about adolescence now is, I assume they're tracking other their friends' followerships, and they now have a way to quantify popularity. Right, popularity was bad enough as a teenager. The, the notion of it. When there's no way, when there's no metrics surrounding it, but to say this person is more popular than that person because of their follower count, I'm sure is doing a real number on the adolescent mind. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, there's been these studies done of what Instagram does to teenage girls, yeah. and it's just yeah. terrifying. I want to talk to when we're thinking about success and failure and the way these things are defined by the culture about fate. And I guess free will to some extent, the decisions that we make that end up being so consequential. Uh, this is another thing you draw in the book really well mm -hmm. with respect to Paul's life and career arc, because he did, at least in theory, early on in his professional existence, have an opportunity to take a big swing. And he didn't. He made the choice not to take a job assisting this guy named, like, very, I think this is a very good character naming his name's julian wolf <laughs> just sounds exactly like the kind of guy who would go on to write you know big what big thinky like fiction books, yeah yeah so i think about this a lot you know it, so much of quote unquote success in life comes down to either micro decisions that I really can't penalize a person for if they make the wrong call these things don't seem you can't necessarily see the huge consequences and the way that it'll play out in the moment that you're making the call. And then in other respects, it's just dumb luck, mm -hmm. which a lot of times people don't like to admit, especially if they've had lots of success. <laughs> um, it's much more fun. It's much more pleasant to just be like, I did this, you know, and uh, it's all me, but I have to believe that with a little humility, you would say that it's, it's some combination of both. This is a big subject that I, I, I do also try to get at in, I think all my books to some extent, I think it's ultimately all dumb luck or it's all deterministic fate and that we, we have very little free will. Um, and I guess scientifically there are these theories that uh, without me being too uh, conversant in this idea that everything's deterministic, that we have no mental free will and that every neuron firing is something else, you know, it's all, that you could maybe like have a computer simulation play out all of life. I don't quite believe that. Uh, you know, I can say whatever I want to some degree right now, and that seemingly should be free will, but that, who knows, whatever I say is the product of some deterministic machine machinery going on that I'm not aware of. That all aside, so much of our lives is just dictated from the moment you're born. On a socioeconomic level, you know, almost all of your future earning is dictated by basically the zip code and parents you're born into and to with some room for latitude, but 
you know, it's it's pretty hard to be born to billionaires and not end up a billionaire. <laughs> and it's pretty hard to be born into poverty and end up a billionaire too. And the the rarity of either case occurring shows you that it's just all heritable. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's interesting, and it makes me want to loop back to what we were talking about with respect to generational divides, because there is one character who sort of embodies the latitude or the possibility of latitude, and that is the boyfriend of uh, Paul's mother. Why am I blanking on his name? I always forget. Marvin, Marvin Belfer. I yeah, believe. Marvin. So his mother is a widow, and she started dating in her 80s, I guess. Yeah. And Marvin is this guy who I think was from the Bronx and then became mm-hmm. a doctor. You know, I feel like baby boomers maybe in particular it's not that it was guaranteed that you were if you were born into a lower socioeconomic realm that you would be able to ascend but they certainly generationally seem like they had the best possible shot at that yeah you know and he he embodies that you know and he's one of these characters who managed to kind of live the american dream and and is arrogant about it and judgmental of those who who he thinks are basically whiners now who feel like society's holding them down and paul has in in one of paul's better moments has a a monologue of thinking this guy was born at the best time in history in a body that is of a a white male and born by the 1930s that enabled all these possibilities and seemingly unrepeatable that we may not ever see this quite like this again where you could be born into a kind of lower middle class background and with a fair degree of ease, become a thriving doctor in, in, in New York. Uh, not so easy anymore. It's hard not to look at those people and think, wow, you really were one of the luckiest humans mathematically in the history of, of the world. Yeah, <laughs> Such a I mean, rare pocket of time. I've always thought to be born in 1945, so after World War II, would be the ideal because you're, you're, you're post that, you don't have to fight in Korea I mean, just you couldn't be unless you got drafted for for Vietnam, you couldn't have have hit time to better for avoiding major wars and and sliding into the most prosperous time in American history. Yeah, you look at the economic graph for people born, you know, in that era, and they basically rode a wave that went like this, you know. And I think it's naturally hard for people to see outside of their own experience. You know, so Marvin looking at Paul or looking at anybody who might feel put upon by the cultural shifts and economic shifts and ecological shifts that are kind of bearing down on all of us. Somebody who's sort of made it through life the way that Marvin has, it's maybe, you know, 
it's it's disturbingly common for them to be like, "What are you bitching about?" <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. Well, let's go back to your your free will versus deterministic question. There, are the there's the determinism of it's sort of out of your out of your control. Then there's the the thing that Paul gets proposed, which is to help this guy be his assistant, and it, it the, another guy does it instead, and, and goes on to a storied writing career. Paul doesn't do it. Not it's not just luck. It's not just a bad decision. It's sort of fundamental to who he is. He some part of him is afraid of taking that big swing and of the ambition required to be a quote unquote great man, and that's what holds him down from taking that opportunity. It's not just he comes up with a few excuses at the moment, but it's fundamentally not in his nature to go for that. And I do think quite a bit of life is that too. There's the truly lucky uh, or unlucky things that that radically divert us. And then there's the opportunities that present themselves, but something in our character makes us take or not take them. And and in this case, Paul is just not someone who, who bites off more than he can chew because he's afraid of it. Yeah. I think, like, personally, I sometimes, I think I've recoiled my whole life at competition. Mm. I really feel, like, some deep gut level, you know, it's like, uh, I'm like, I don't think this is good. I don't think this is healthy. <laughs> like, it's There's not a he- thing in that in the book, too. There's that maybe you connected with that when he goes into the, the news organization and watches, sees all the people in their cubicles, and he's thinking about, uh, academics are afraid of competition and they silo themselves in, in library carols, but Paul knows he'd be spat out if he entered a, a big corporation like this. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to hack it. No, yeah, and I, but I mean, and, and it also probably wouldn't want to hack it because of mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the kind of moral sacrifices that are required of you. You know, you have to kind of flip a switch off in your brain yeah. to go into that kind of environment and thrive. Um, it takes a certain commitment and you know, I know a lot of people are doing it just because they feel like they have to make a living and they don't feel like they have a choice. But that feels really tragic to me and problematic. And I have tripped myself up my entire adult life over these kinds of questions. And it applies to writing too, just to anything. Like this like kind of insatiable ambition. And, you know, to succeed, you have to win, right? I mean, in some kind of crude way. And to win, that means somebody's got to lose. <laughs> and I'm always like, what about the losers, you know? And I, <laughs> it just fucks with my head endlessly. I don't want to go through my life in an unthinking way and just be like, well, this is the way things are. And yet I also can be plagued because I can, you know, I'm just prone to like endless spiraling by the notion that maybe I've made things unnecessarily complicated for myself. Like maybe there's a way to bridge these things that wise people find. Well, I've never had a, a, a real job by which I mean join an organization or an institution potentially permanently and, you know, with no end in sight. I've always had temp jobs or been an adjunct lecturer. Um, I had a lot of temp jobs in my 20s and early 30s very deliberately i mean part of it was i never actually got hired for any place and I, there, were t- there were times i did apply for jobs and just didn't get hired i might have become a lifer um but i also don't like like you i don't enjoy the competition the sort of the the direct competition of your around colleagues and coworkers, and presumably you're trying to beat another company or another college or whatever it is there's some even if it's not a, a stated mission 
um, if you join uh, a college, which is theoretically just for the purpose of you know, increasing knowledge and, and making the world better, supposedly, you're still trying to make your college better than other colleges so that other students come to it. If you work for a newspaper or magazine, you're very obviously trying to make your magazine or newspaper more widely read than other places. I, I never joined one of those, and I, you know, there's some level at which, yes, being a writer and being an author, you're trying to get your book to be read more than other people's books. I mean, no one would ever admit that, but every writer would like to be read more widely than they are, probably, uh, whether or not they want to admit it. So there's competition still, but it's it's much more muted and restrained competition. And I, too, don't really like it. I like you know, like board game competition, like when it's low stakes, I, I get kind of competitive. But about real world competition, I too feel this this sadness of this zero sum game shouldn't be how it how it has to be. This this feels wrong to me, and I could never be like a, a Mark Zuckerberg crushing his. Co- I would just feel too bad for the people I got, you know, fired or or whose companies I put under for the sake of my own steamrolling. Grand, yeah, think, grand. About, think about Jeff Bezos. Like what yeah, you, yeah. you have to be able to live with the knowledge. Like to them, I think it's just like, yeah, that's the that's the business reality of it. Like we yeah. won, we won, we won the consumer. And if that means that another company has to go down and all these people lose their jobs and mom and pop stores get crushed, well, the market dictates, you know. And it's such a cold worldview. <laughs> it's highly cynical. And what you hear a lot, I remember reading uh, an interview with Giuliani during the, the Trump administration. So it was when he was in full crackpot mode. And I think it was for The New Yorker. I think they asked him, do you ever worry about your legacy? What will, what will people think of you when you're, when you're gone? And he said, I'll be dead. What do I care? And I think there is that they have this feeling of who, who gives a shit? You know, <laughs> like they're, they're not affected. They're, there's a sociopathic or psychopathic element to it of truly not caring about being perceived as bad people or convincing themselves that they're good people too. But I think in the end, a lot of, I think Trump knows he's a bad person. I think he doesn't really care. I think he's happy to be getting away with it. And he probably feels like he's led uh, an amazing life because he's succeeded so much. And I don't think there's uh, you know an ounce of guilt over destroying people's lives if that gets in the way of him. Yeah. I mean, it's funny about a guy like him and the people that he surrounds himself with. Like one of the many things that troubled me about them and that and the era that we just lived through and are continuing to some extent to live through is the lack of shame yeah like i am a person to whom shame comes very easily (laughs) and it's astounding to me how there's just zero shame and it doesn't trip them up at all. They don't second guess it at all. And yeah. if they do, it, it lasts, you know, uh, 10 seconds and they move on. And I cannot square that. It's like, I don't even know how you could be a human, like a human being and operate that way. But I guess that's what we're talking about. It's sociopath behavior, psychopath behavior. That's their wiring. Yeah, I've been watching a little bit of the the congressional hearings, uh, the 1-6 the commission that is. Um, and some of the people being interviewed seem like they're normal humans who happen to work for the Trump administration, like the lawyers who work for him. And they, they, they're not, you know, the Giuliani's, they're not the, the whoever else is in Sydney Powell. Yeah, they're not, they're not these truly insane people. And so you're like, well, 
how did they even work for him in the first place? And maybe it was just a, a real calculus of this will help my career somewhat, or I believe in his policies. I don't like the guy, but but you wonder they're the ones I guess who are agreeing to cooperate, and so they are a little bit more uh, subject to shame and, and recognize I've got to I've got to redeem myself here if I participate in this. But it, it is shocking, and I think that is the only explanation that there are people who are so removed from normal super ego of 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 feeling any kind of response to criticism and they probably were that way mostly to begin with there's a certain kind of shameless personality that i'm sure is drawn to politics like this and then it's whatever was left got beaten out of them over the years and they become these these monsters um but it's uh i think the one thing the one like consolation we have is even if they're not going to jail or getting punished, I think they all have miserable interior lives. I think they're all pretty unhappy in their lives. I think it's impossible for Don Donald Trump Jr. to have a normal romantic relationship. I can't imagine his his <laughs> thing with Kimberly Gilfoyle has like real emotions to it. And also think with his kids. I think there, it's impossible for them to have genuine love for and receive it from their their kids. I think there's there's a level which they are they're 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 monstrous and they are therefore monsters in their lives too and and they're surrounded by monsters and there's a uh, maybe happiness is not what drives them maybe it's just purely success and ambition but i don't think donald trump when he goes to bed at night is happy and that's the one victory we have over him i think he's a miserable asshole yeah yeah and i mean i was admiring your book when i was reading it because it definitely is a response to living in the trump era but you have to find a way in that doesn't alienate people too much or like just hammer people <laughs> too yeah. much with like diatribes or political opinions or, you know, you got to find a way to bring people along. And this book does that. And I'm wondering how long it took you to find your way in. You know what I'm saying? Like to, yeah. ba to balance the responsibilities of a storyteller with these very real world concerns. So the risk of it would be if you and I just talked about how bad Trump is for the rest of the podcast, everyone would, would tune out at some point because it'd become it's obvious, it'd become tedious, and doesn't need to be stated even. It, it, it should be clear. Anyone who's like, you know, got a half-functioning brain knows he's a, a, a corrupt, evil con man, and, and to state that in fiction is, is just annoying, too, at a point because it's it just preaching to the choir. So I needed to make sure that I didn't make it about that, but instead to make it about the kind of guy who would write a book like that and wouldn't see it as being a problem and then to have enough distance from him so that the reader can have a critical take on this guy as opposed to being just force-fed his, his unending deluge of, of anti-Trump sentiment. So that was one, one part, is that just to, to take the foot off the gas pedal uh, as an anti-Trump Jeremiah and to make it instead about the kind of guy who would come up with that sort of Jeremiah. Um, the other was to, to make it, you know, fill out his emotional life and, and the, his relationship with his daughter is I think the heart of this book. And it's what he's ultimately responding to as much as his insecurity about his professional standing or his anger at the political world around him or the cultural climate. It's that he's losing his 11 year old turns 12 in the course of the book daughter uh, whom he once had a very close relationship with and is now pulling away, both because she's a product of the culture whose, you know, 12-year-old girls start pulling away. That's what they do typically. 
but also she's seeing him as this as this not irrelevant as a cultural figure but as a a, a father figure she no longer wants to associate with this this guy who's aging himself you know in an accelerated fashion who's becoming this grumpy old man though he's just 46 and she wants to pull away from that and so making this more about paul's emotional plight rather than his political or cultural plight felt like the way to save it from being a book that i would want to stop reading too we've all lived through it so how do you make people not relive through a pretty horrible experience and you know not it's not like holocaust horrible where it it needs to be have personal stories to elucidate the horror of what happened it's a it's a different kind of horror look this this is not to sound like a, a college stone sophomore waxing but philosophical here but this has been an insane six years it's just stuff we never saw before not just the pandemic but the trump years were just truly uh unimaginable the way the president conducted himself just never just a, a massive shift from how it had been done in american history uh just that just yeah, two days ago or so, Trump was responding to his daughter's uh, slight distancing of herself in, in the One Six Commission, and he said she was just trying to be respectful to Bill Barr. This is on his like Truth Social platform, and in parentheses, he sucked. <laughs> and then, it, it sort of lost in the in the mix of all. You know, we were so used to Trump that it's just weird that the former president is calling his attorney general saying he sucked, and that we don't even bat an eye anymore at his use of language. Not that that's even the worst he's ever had, with much much worse from him, but he sucked is what 12-year-olds say. And the president of the United States, or former president, it's now just sort of standard to hear him say that. The, um, the big thing I feel like about the Trump years is not policy. I think he was not radically different from his Republican predecessors. Um, there's a pandemic that was different. It was his rhetoric. He spoke like no one else, and he spoke in this manner that was coarse and vulgar and cruel and nasty and and ad hominem. And we've never seen that from any elected official, let alone the president of the United States. And that changed the character of the country, I think, irrevocably. It's opened up this Pandora's box of you can say anything now. You can be as mean as you want. It's affected not just his right wing uh, supporters, but I think even the left has, has stooped to his level because of that. Uh, not everyone, but to a fair degree, it's cool now to be to be an asshole on Twitter, basically. Uh, and I think before him, there's still some sense of decorum, and not to use a word that that is uh, fairly controversial, but civility uh, is out is gone now. And I think Trump has permanently, at least for decades to come, hopefully not, but it might be change that so that rhetoric uh, from our leaders is now viewed in a different light and with a different set of standards. And what was once um, unsanctioned is now not just sanctioned, but endorsed. Yeah. Well, yeah. And along with that, he just has zero fidelity to reality, facts, truth, and he has yeah. no shame. So it's like the it's like the last thing anybody wants to talk about, and yet there's it's always top of mind, especially when he was president. And your book sort of speaks to that too, where you get to this point where people would say, "I don't even want to say his name," <laughs> you know, like yeah. Which uh, I, I look, I, I understand that, I understand the fatigue, and I understand some listening to this is like, can these guys move on from this topic? <laughs> I do feel like, as Paul 
thinks in the book, we should talk about him, not in the way of, not about like cub thief and stupid distractions, but we're on like the knife edge of, of lapsing into a potential authoritarian state, which would be really bad for all of us. And if we don't talk about it all the time, it might actually happen if we're not on the ball. And, and to some extent, maybe talking about it doesn't do anything anyway. But life could get very, very bad in America in, in two years or two and a half years. And it should scare us all. And we shouldn't be talking about other things, I think. Or yeah. We should be talking about other things. But this should be the, the dominant, this and climate change. I think should just be like every newspaper headline should be democracy and climate change and and everything else let's 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 work on every other problem maybe after we figure out these two things first because without these two it, the other problems don't even matter that's they're, right it's the worst things going on yeah they're foundational I couldn't agree more I think uh, I think we would do well to have more difficult conversations you know even if they're difficult maybe that's exactly the reason we need to be having them but if we don't talk about it I don't see how things improve. You know, we have to look at these things head on. They're big, pressing, um, catastrophic, uh, potentially catastrophic uh, issues, you know. And I appreciate a book like yours that goes into it and allows me as a reader to engage with it through these characters. And... Another thing about your book that I was so impressed by is how well plotted it is. And it's definitely literary fiction. Uh, you know, we always have to kind of draw these distinctions, but it's a very well plotted book. And I want to say Paul in the book talks about planning his projects. I don't know if yeah, he did. It does. Do, do, okay, right. okay. Yeah. Do you plan? I um, do. Okay, yeah. so to talk about that, like let's get into the craft of it because... Um, I was fascinated by the way this thing is built. It felt to me like it seemed to hit its marks, you know? It kept me going, and it did so in the way of, like, a good film, which I feel like has maybe more responsibilities put upon it as a medium, mm -hmm. you know, in this department. Uh, like, were you thinking along those lines? Is that how you think when you're plotting a novel to try to make sure that for the reader, you know, this thing is doing the things that good stories do. <laughs> Very much so. Um, I, I outline always, uh, not the most intense outlines of all times, of all time, but uh, certainly the shape of the plot and uh, mostly a scene-by-scene -scene, um, ordering of them that, that fluctuates and changes over time as I continue writing. Um, but I wouldn't know how to write a novel without a, a roadmap before me. And I could, I just couldn't do it, or I could do it, but it'd be, it would be bad, or require revision later on. So for this, I, rem I remember very distinctly just coming up with the idea one day, it was summer of twenty nineteen, August. I remember, and I started writing just like basic thoughts on this kind of character and the world of uh, the setting and world, and what the sort of plot might be, the the, the broader story might be. And then over the course of like two days, I want to say, I just hacked out a version of the outline that, that's here now. It, it, it grew as I continued writing it, but um, that's, how I, that's my process. And I've started doing more screenwriting in the last uh, four years or so, um, some TV and some film screenwriting. 
And I, I you're right, TV and film both require much more adherence to a narrative that moves forward relentlessly. And there's little, there's less space for what often shows up in fiction of, you know, three pages of someone just thinking. Uh, you could not show that in a TV show or, or movie. And so I do think that got into my bones a little bit. I, I think I remember talking with you in our first conversation on this podcast like nine years ago about teaching myself screenwriting in college before it had had any formal fiction instruction and the screenwriting techniques of structure and narrative really got into me before I learned it in a, in a fiction workshop, which I never really learned in a fiction workshop because they tend to just avoid that subject altogether. So I, I always have a, a pretty strong three act structure in mind anyway, when I write stories, I don't really know how to do it otherwise without a beginning, middle and end. And there's other tricks I've learned over the years about how to make that structure work. Like what? But like at the midpoint, you want some sort of twist, ideally. Uh, so a, a novel or a movie like Gone Girl is a very clear example of that, where the twist is she's she's alive when you thought she was dead. And it, it's the right timing for the audience to, who might need something new to happen uh, in a big way to radically reorient the, the, the shape of, of the story. But yeah, like in, in I mean, you've done some screenwriting too, as if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah. TV or film or, or both? Both, but TV primarily. But film, it's it's easier to talk about just because it's TV has changed the the dynamic with you know long seasons and or short seasons. Film, there's these almost formulaic standards for what you should do. Like the first act must end between pages 25 and 30, and it almost is always. Uh, the case. If you watch any movie, by minute 30, they're definitely going to be in a different phase of the story, whether it's a different location altogether or something new and big has happened. And then again, before, you know, between, depending on how long the movie is, between minutes 85 and 90, the same thing. That's when you get into the, into the last act. And not to, uh, I don't want to make it sound like my novel writing is, is that formulaic, but I do have these these ideas in mind when I start plotting out a novel. I think it's good. I mean, I like, I, I'll say this. I have a lot of admiration for like, uh, especially the feature film screenplay format, like that 90 minute or so feature film script and the marks that you have to hit in order to deliver a story that's going to work on screen. I think that has a lot to teach writers of literary fiction. Uh, I need as much of that as I can get because I could easily spend 20 pages inside of a character's head. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm always uh, attuned to people who are good at plotting while also having that level of depth and sophistication and just the quality of the prose. Like the book is, your book is so beautifully written. So um, I'm interested to know that this is the case. And I should say too, like, I feel like we're all sort of, you know, maybe generationally, but I think all of us at this point, you know, you talk about the kind of uh, dictates of screenwriting being in your bones after teaching it to yourself in college. I think it's sort of in our bones just from our consumptive patterns. Like how many of us yeah. were weaned on TV and film? I mean, eventually these, these story beats, you know, we become accustomed to them. They're somewhere in our wiring. And it's even that has changed. A, a friend who uh, had a was working on a pilot for Netflix, they told him that um, something big needs to happen within the first 10 minutes because that's when their internal data shows people start t 
turn it off if they're not if something big hasn't happened within ten minutes, and so of a of a, of a pilot that is. So even a pilot that might have in the past been allowed more breathing room and maybe say twenty minutes for the big thing to happen, even that has now been condensed and truncated because of our changing demands and the changing medium. Wow, I mean, kind of depressing. Also not surprising. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, it's not surprising, and, and I'm someone who's easily bored when I read, and a lot of, put a lot of books down just because I feel like the story is not grabbing me or the voice isn't grabbing me. But I, I found, as I get older, whereas you'd think aging would make me just more uh, interested in, in slower-paced books that are just more meditative, and, and certainly some of those I love, but it's the opposite. I feel more and more like I need a good story to keep me going or else I, I'm not on, on, on board. I, I, I've been saying this repeatedly recently, but like, I feel like oftentimes I read and things could be cut. Yeah. I'm just like, speed it up. Like, let's go. You know, where is the, why are we meandering here? You know, or why is this going on and on? Like we should have been done 200 pages ago or, you know, I have that sort of thought and I'm like, Part of me is like, well, maybe I just have like uh, an appreciation for concision. Another part of me is like, maybe my br- my brain is so irreparably, you know, irreparably ruined by uh, technology that I don't have the attention span that I should. You know, it's maybe it's some combination. But I appreciate it whenever. I think what where I'll land is by saying that I appreciate the feeling of effortlessness at turning the pages whenever I read a book of any kind mm-hmm. and of any length. That is what I want. I don't care if it's a 600-page book or a 150-page book. You know, sometimes there's just a speed, and that's mm-hmm. what I want. You know, I don't want it to feel like I'm plodding along or that it's drudge work. Yeah, well, the, the, what I always tell my students when I teach workshops is a scene, as long as something happens in the scene and something changes over the course of the scene, then it's a scene worth meriting inclusion if things don't change, if you can't point to some value or some event in the in the world of the story that has not shifted by the, from the beginning to the end, it means it's a scene where nothing truly happens. And even if you write beautiful atmospheric description and get into someone's thoughts, it, you have to have something else that pulls the reader along to compensate for the fact that you're not storytelling in that in that scene. And I wish someone wrote an uh, I don't have an image to write this kind of essay, but there are multiple reasons why this is the case for TV and film and not for books. Namely, I think it's just harder to sit through a boring scene in a, in, in front of a TV or in front of a movie in a movie theater than it is to read a book where you have other things working for you. But other reason is that um, the editing process is very different in books. Yeah. You might have friends who read it and, and, you know, colleagues who read it, but in the end it's just one editor and you typically working on, on a novel. And, with screenwriting, a lot of people get their hands in there and and edit it. And they both want things sped up for the sake of the medium, but also they catch, like, this. nothing's happens in, happening in this one-page scene. I think we can cut it in a way that I think a book editor doesn't either think to catch because it's okay more so in books, or they just overlook it because it's just one person doing that job. And so there's... Yes, too many cooks often ruins it. I, my feeling is that a lot of TV now is extremely competently made mediocrity. Yeah, it's very well done and it's boring still because it's just there's no blood behind it. There's no passion and no worldview, no vision. 
and most fiction is the opposite. It's very, uh, it's unique and individualistic, but not often uh, crafted as impeccably because it's just, it's one author and one editor and it's, it's hard. It's always difficult to do. It's nearly impossible to write a good book and just often falls short and I'm not uh, exempting myself here either. But when you have like 10 executives weighing in on a screenplay, you're probably not gonna have any excess material that needs to be cut because they probably had enough eyes on it to catch it. But at that point, it's been bled dry of, of anything that was original about it too. I mean, I have to say my experiences have been very good in the TV film world and that every, I'm not just saying this because they might hear me someday, but every executive I've worked with has genuinely been smart and sharp and not at all the the, the stereotype of the of the vacuous LA executive who who just wants to make money. Like they, they people who are driven to it by the artistic possibilities. So it might just be luck and, and that I've worked with good people. It has to be that somewhat because there's so much trash out there that clearly not everyone is in it to just do that. But I think maybe it's certain places do this and look there are there's some truly superb tv especially being made now by very original voices that um i think probably what makes it good is that my guess is they're given free reign and they're someone like a donald glover is being told he can do basically whatever he wants to do and he's so talented he makes something that's extraordinary and that's not been seen before i think most people are not given that opportunity and most people you know, don't deserve it either because they're not as good as he is. And so they need more guidance. But then a lot of this is just, yes, playing to the middle or playing to the lowest common denominator. And um, I think it's just, you know, part of like financial concern that maybe there was a, a brief period there where TV had money to throw at creators who wouldn't necessarily give them a big return on investment, but they hope they might. And now that era seems to be ending. And right. I think they're now just thinking about what will play internationally is another big thing the Netflix uh, guy told me that they they really need things to be appreciable by non-English speaking audiences. So there has to be something that's too specific and culturally appropriate just to America or understood by Americans has less of a chance now being made than it, than it might have in the past. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating how these like... the things seem to be shifting like Netflix is definitely seems seems to be going through a difficult time it had these kind of like it was like the wild west almost you know this decade yeah. uh, decade plus where they had a, they were throwing a lot of money around and then now it seems like they're losing subscribers a little bit and they're going to have to reorient themselves so it'll be interesting and i guess i will end by asking you if there's been any like optioning of uh the new novel is the great man theory something that you plan to adapt or yeah i, I am adapting it for for a tv for a production company I, I guess i'm not not to sound coy about it i think i'm not allowed to state who it is not that it matters but i think they still want me doing it but i'm adapting it for tv um Weirdly, I guess I can say it's setting it in the UK. Um, this is a function of it's two production companies. One of them is UK based, and they got an actor who I probably also can't name, who's who's British, um, who's interested in playing the role and, and playing the lead role. So the idea is to set it in London, but in the near future, uh, so that 
to account for the fact that they don't have someone who's as Trump-like. Boris Johnson is, is a little bit Trump-like, but not quite the same. Uh, so I'll set it there and hopefully we'll sell it if it ever gets made to a UK network and then presumably sell it back to the, to America after at that point. But I should also just say it'll probably never get made. These things never, <laughs> nothing ever works out. Yeah, I know, so I know. It's, it's like the I'm hallmark. Happy to get the health, the WJ health insurance. I'm I'm pleased to get, but um, I don't expect to ever see it on on a small screen. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? I'll keep my fingers crossed. I, as I was reading, I was kind of joking to myself. I was like, this book has strong Paul Giamatti energy. Yeah, everyone says that. Yeah, yeah it definitely feels like. Uh, I don't know why it's 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 more of commentary on him than it is on the book. You know, yeah, there's something it, that he actors he's played, yeah, yeah, and just like what he embodies. But uh, the British actor is not Giamatti esque at all. Um, you you would know, I could tell you after we get off, it's not a big deal. But it's he a different he's a different sensibility. But I think he could tap into that frustrated male rage that Giamatti embodies so well. Yeah, right. And uh, I think too, if you like, the, just hearing you talk about it, said in in uh, the UK in the di- not too distant future, you know, it kind of shifts the narrative a bit into more like speculative fiction, which is actually an interesting tweak, you know? Yeah. And made me think I should have done that for the book itself. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yeah. it should have been better. Well, this is a time to write your wrongs in the adaptation, right? You know, you get another crack at it, but as it stands as a book, I thoroughly enjoyed it and found it like riveting and funny at times, like darkly funny but also like moving and then uncomfortable. It's like this great, you know, holistic experience. Uh, but uh, kudos to you for it. And uh, are you working on, aside from the adaptation, any other books? Yeah, I am working on one now. And uh, I, I wrote it in a blitz uh, in January and February, a draft, and I've been revising it since then. But that it's good to have another project going on as, as this comes out. Can you talk about what its concerns are? Without like, I don't need you to summarize it, but I've just yeah. Like, I'd say it gets the idea of, of amb- what we talked about earlier on, this overweening ambition and the drive for more and the, the growth idea. And the I, I guess the, the thing I said to you was sort of adapted from a, a passage I wrote the other day about uh, being happy with it. There's a line the character says, happiness is not, I'm, I'm messing it up, it's not getting everything you want, but being happy with the little you do have. And, and not just being happy with what you have, but the little you have, that you should be okay with not having too much as opposed to just getting what you want. And that's the conundrum, I think, for the main character who I don't want to give things away and we'll see if this ever gets turned into a, a real book, but um, is driven by that kind of insatiable, gets corrupted by it over the course of the novel. All right. Well, you've got a lot going on. Congratulations uh, on all of it. And we'll look forward to... Uh, future work really enjoyed uh, the great man theory thank you Brad. and again I, I, I genuinely truly loved your book and uh, I hope you've enjoyed the publication process yourself but it's a great book and um, you should just be proud of it it's, it's a wonderful novel okay everybody there we go that was Teddy Wayne and his new novel is called the great man theory available now from Bloomsbury To learn more about Teddy, you can check out his website at teddywayne.com. You can also find him on Twitter. His handle there is at teddywayne1999. One more time, the new one is called The Great Man Theory. I recommend it. Go get your copy right now. 
The Other People podcast is listener-supported. The entire archive of this show is available to listeners free of charge. That's almost 800 episodes and counting. All of it is available to listeners, and the show's continued survival depends on your support. So if you like the program, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider supporting it. You can do that for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. As little as $1 a month. I've made it as easy as I can make it on people to support this show. So I hope you'll consider it. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. You can get gear, t-shirt, a tote bag, sticker, coffee mug, book club subscription, and so on and so forth. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to get your hands on my new novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and an audiobook edition that is narrated by yours truly. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It too is free. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available wherever apps are available. It's a great way to listen. Go get the Other People app. The Other People podcast is also on YouTube. Did you know that? The Other People show has its own YouTube channel. Search for it by name over at YouTube, Other PPL with Brad Listy. The entire archive is on YouTube check out our channel and then subscribe it's free just click the subscribe button it helps the cause another great way to help the show is to rate it and review it wherever you listen to your shows if you could do that it just takes like a minute or two and it does help other listeners find the show so rate it and review it if you have a couple of minutes to spare otherwise i think we're moving through the summer you know I hope you're doing all right out there. I've got some good ones in the pipeline. I'm trying to think of who's coming up next week. Oh, you know who I'm going to be talking with next week is David Kep, author of Aurora, the TMB book club pick for July, and possibly the most accomplished screenwriter of his generation. So that's a good one coming up next week. Stay tuned.